Welcome to the New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of How Statesmen Think, The Psychology of International Politics, published by Princeton University Press. The author of the book is Robert Jervis. I have Professor Jervis with me today on the phone. How are you doing today? Well, except for a, a cold, not bad. Well, well, that is certainly going around and, and uh, of the season. Um, given your cold, thank you so much for your time to talk about this book that is recently out, a series of essays uh, on, on some uh, important issues in, in the study of international relations and, and your specific perspective on this. Um, I'm just really interested in and eager to talk about the book because of its timeliness, um, and we'll get to that, some of its sort of its relationship to what is in our in our current discussions. But um, let's let's start start talking about some of the things at the beginning of the book, some of the foundational ideas here. Toward the start of the book, uh, you talk about the nature of beliefs and you write that. And I quote, we often have difficulty taking seriously beliefs with which we disagree and then you illustrate this with the example of Pearl Harbor. I wonder if you would retell that example and what it says about the slippery nature of beliefs. Yes, I'm really glad you started with that because I think it has lots of ramifications. Uh, well, in the Pearl Harbor case, we had one reason, I think really the underlying reason that the U.S. was taken by surprise at Pearl Harbor was that we really couldn't fully empathize with the Japanese. We couldn't see how desperate they felt because to attack Pearl Harbor was almost suicidal. It, in retrospect, it guaranteed an all-out war that Japan simply could not win. It had a GDP of roughly one-tenth of the U.S. But we just couldn't understand that Japan, for Japan, it was literally do or die, that they felt they were faced with giving up their essential national interest, even their national character, because the U.S. was blocking them everywhere and forcing them not only out of southern, out of Indochina, but out of China and totally isolating them. And we just, you know, that didn't seem to make any sense. I mean, how could they believe that? And let me give you another, I think, more more current example. A lot of historians, and say some of my best friends are historians. I'm a political scientist who uses a great deal of history and loves what they write and argues with them all the time. A lot, most historians who write on Vietnam don't, can, don't believe that the one of the major motives and probably the major motive driving Kennedy and certainly Johnson and then Nixon was a version of the domino theory, a belief that if the communists won in South Vietnam, it would have wide ranging consequences, not only in uh, Southeast Asia and Asia in general, but even in Europe, because First, historians look at the record and see that didn't happen. They don't want, like the war. They can't really grasp that that belief was really driving until they look for other things. Domestic politics, which, which did play an important role for Johnson. Uh, fear of humiliation, 
played a role for Johnson and Nixon as well, but I think not central, uh, or sort of other strange things. When we really find other people's beliefs odd or even abhorrent, we really have trouble seeing that they may drive their behavior. And I think that gets into a lot of trouble understanding. History gets us a lot of trouble uh, really understanding how people very different from us in other situations behave and gets policy in a lot of problems as well. Now, the second chapter of the book looks at how people make decisions and the often misguided ways we use information. Uh, we had Frank Baumgartner on the podcast last year, and he, he talked about the proliferation of information in Washington and how that has changed the ways government makes decisions. Now, he was focused mainly on domestic policymaking. I wonder, has foreign policy and international relations decision-making changed over time in how decision-makers confront information, and has this same type of proliferation of information change the nature of uh, foreign policymaking? That's a very intriguing question to which I don't have a well-thought-out answer. Um, I think to some extent it has, but maybe not as much as in domestic policy, where <laughs> I think there's a tremendous profusion of data and uh, great blooming of interest groups, both narrow and public interest groups. Foreign policy has always been more an elite realm. And I think while the sources of information have increased, they haven't increased as much. I think presidents certainly starting with Wilson, when you when foreign policy becomes really important to the US, have always reached outside the government have always had some distrust of the State Department and then in the post-45 years, CIA and other intelligence and look to personal friends or informal organizations and journalists, I think probably more than they have in domestic, partly because foreign policy is literally foreign to almost all presidents. So I think you know, you've got these extra players in earlier, perhaps, in foreign policy. But it certainly is true that the people at the top or even at the middle of the pyramid face incredible information overload. And in a crisis, even the uh, analysts at the lower levels uh, who are just looking in narrower slices have more information than they can possibly read and absorb. And, and it's, a, it's a problem. Now, you talk in Chapter 3 about uh, some of the difference between, differences between laboratories and natural settings. Um, and we seem to learn different things about decision-making in each type of situation. Um, so so how, how does the foreign policy realm illustrate the, the two different ways of understanding decision-making from these sort of the, the laboratory setting to, to um, decision-making in, in much more natural, realistic settings? Yeah, I think that this is a real challenge to academics who we really crave pinning down exactly what's happening and why. 
causation, uh, what the economists call identification strategies. And in the real world, it's just next to impossible. There are so many factors coming in. We can make causal inferences, and we do all the time, but they are fragile. Uh, and so if we can control more factors, we can do better on causation. And experiments allow us to do that. But we want to be careful. In the last, I don't know, six, eight years, experiments have been somewhat of a fad in political science. They used to be totally scorned. Then economists started doing it, and political scientists who follow economists decided to do the same thing. Uh, and there are real value to that. But we obviously can't use real decision makers in our experiments. And the settings are always artificial. So I think the best thing we try to do is to triangulate to see if what we find in experimental settings looks to dovetail with what we see when we look back at cases, and that helps us get at causation. Sometimes it doesn't dovetail, and, and the chapter you mentioned is one where I think there's a difference in the kinds of information people look at. Uh, that Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, partly for work like this, said that we tend to sort of do what he calls representativeness, look how much one case matches another, and ignore what's called the base rate, the general prevalence of certain kinds of things in the world. And I find that's not a good way, I think, to understand most decision makers, but I think we can reconcile the two, because uh, when decision makers are acting, they're going by their implicit ideas on causation. And those they get often from looking at a set of cases. And so they're willing to ignore certain evidence of a type that is heavily weighted in experiments because they're coming at the cases with their own powerful theories. And in the experiments, we're setting up things where people, the subjects, don't have powerful theories about what they're looking at. And to me, this is that difference is very useful because it points to what I think is the often theory-driven nature of a lot of the perception we get, both in the ordinary life with us as individuals and for decision makers. Now, later in the book, you have this this interesting discussion of the uniqueness of international relations scholarship. Uh, you write in that in that part of the book, and, and I quote, international relations scholars are theorizing about actors who not only have their own theories, but also whose theories deal with the same subjects that the scholars are exploring. Now, what are the implications of this situation for the field of international relations, This uh, the merging of the those that are being studied uh, with with the those that are doing the studying? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject. We, the community, is not fully explored. And uh, I'm influenced by what a former colleague now at, at UCSD, Eric Gartsky, wrote 
marvelous article called War is in the Error Term. You know, it's a statistical thing. I don't do statistics, but he explains it in a non-statistical way. Take the example of theories of war. If decision makers think that certain circumstances are likely to produce a war and they don't want a war because they think they might lose and it can be very costly, they on both sides will work hard to avoid the war. And so circumstances which our initial theory says should lead to war now won't produce many wars. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate how much decision makers borrow from academics. Uh, it goes both ways. But the point is, if they, if our theories match theirs, they will be acting in ways, in a sense, often to defeat those theories, to see that what the theory would lead us to expect, all things being equal, doesn't occur because all things aren't equal. And they don't want that outcome. In other cases, of course, it can work the other way, that their theory can say, under these circumstances, if I do this, I'll get the outcome I want. And so they may behave in accord with the theory, partly because they believe it. But you don't have to be a, a constructivist in the extreme sense to see that their real interactions between um, Theories that get a degree of popularity you know, get to be well known and how people behave and then the validity of the theories is now describing uh, what's happening. Now, you, you have towards the end of this the book uh, a prescient chapter title and for chapter six, which is Why Intelligence and Policymakers Clash. Yes. And now I imagine you wrote that chapter long before our most recent election. Uh, but how much of what is going on in Washington right now is is inevitable? And that is the clashes that we see between the White House and the intelligence community. And how much of this do you think is per peculiar to the circumstances of this moment that we're in? I think the general phenomenon is inevitable. The extent of it and the vehemence and the rhetoric is unique to Trump. The problem in general is intelligence, when it's doing a good job, complicates the decision maker's life. You know, the, the people who produce it are have much more information, often quite analytically sophisticated. They're usually going to tell the policymaker the world is more complicated than he thinks. They're also often going to tell him that his policy that he's following isn't working too well, or that a proposed policy has m much higher costs than he'd like to recognize. And you see some of that here. I mean, the, from what we can read, the intelligence community is saying that Russia did obviously hack and did want Trump to win. And, uh, that's something that's uncomfortable for Trump. First, he'd like to reach out to Putin, a policy I actually agree with. And, of course, he doesn't want to think uh, that his victory is in any way tainted. So it's any decision maker in this situation is going to be unhappy. But the openness with which this is expressed and the vehemence and the contempt and the self-promotion and the narcissism 
that's Trump. That's not a, an, an ordinary decision maker. The title of the book, again, is How Statesmen Think, The Psychology of International Politics. The author is Robert Jervis, who is the Adelaide Stevenson Professor of International Politics at Columbia University. Robert Jervis, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.